Depleted Uranium Weapons While the word depleted implies that there's no uranium left and what's there isn't dangerous, that's just another word trick by the nuclear industry to convince us to look away, nothing wrong here, don't worry your pretty little head about it. But then you hear from a genuine expert on DU weapons, someone who collected samples on the ground in Iraq to find out radioactivity levels in that country, went on to witness the devastation those weapons wrecked, and who has a vision for averting a comparable radiological disaster in Ukraine. And he tells you, I went there to Iraq, and I went to the children's hospitals, and I saw the most horrible things I'd ever seen in my life. Even a horror movie wasn't this bad. You think about, say, a cyclop, you know, somebody with an eyeball in the middle of his head. That's really nice for movies, but there's no such thing in reality. There is such things in reality. All you have to do is go to Baghdad and go to some of the children's hospitals there, and you can probably, even today, you can probably find them there. Well, when depleted uranium activist, scholar, and researcher Damasio Lopez tells you what he has learned firsthand about depleted uranium and been able to share it with world leaders, you begin to see how devastating and long-lasting is that terrible, dangerous, awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Damasio Lopez, a depleted uranium scholar expert and activist on how he discovered DU testing and manufacture were happening within two miles of his childhood home. His experiences on the ground in Iraq, taking radiation readings and visiting children's hospitals, the astonishing, if not well-known, influence he exerted in convincing two countries to ban DU, and his vision for getting a 24-page document to President Zelensky in Ukraine to convince him to not allow DU weaponry to be used in and by his country. And in honor of Nuclear Hot Seat's 12th anniversary, which is today, we'll also have a brief look at some special moments from the show in the past year that you never got a chance to hear. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than was included in that 34-count New York grand jury indictment. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 13, 2023, and here is Nuclear Hot Seat celebration of 12 years of weekly shows, along with this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Catching up on the big stories that were put on hold during special coverage of the International Uranium Film Festival, we look at Ukraine, where on June 6th, 
The Kakovka Dam, a critical piece of infrastructure in Ukraine, was blown up, creating tremendous damage and flooding downstream. Less noticed at the time is that upstream, water for cooling the six-reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is drawn from the Dnieper River, and that with the destruction of the dam, water levels are decreasing. Ukraine's intelligence forces reportedly said it had collected evidence that the hydroelectric plant and dam had been destroyed using explosives, and that the belief is that Russia blew up the dam, though that country, of course, denies it and says that Ukraine did it to themselves. Note that according to Reuters news agency, the Geneva Conventions explicitly ban targeting dams in war. The water level in the upstream Kakovka Reservoir was dropping, which could have severe nuclear safety implications for the nearby plant. Commenting on Twitter, Edwin Lyman, a nuclear safety expert at the Union of Concerned Scientists, described the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as a, quote, slow-motion disaster, and said, the impact on the plant is something we are going to see unfold over time. There is a grace period to address this problem, but it is not infinite. Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, claimed that because there is water in a reservoir for emergency cooling, there was, quote, no immediate risk to the safety of the plant. Note the use of the words, no immediate, to lessen the sense of danger while not addressing the possible eventuality if the water levels cannot be maintained. Edwin Lyman said of Grossi's statement of no immediate risk to the safety of the plant, that is, assuming nothing else happens, and went on to say the plant is stable for now, but it is becoming increasingly more vulnerable. And Grossi conceded that, quote, it is vital that this cooling pond remained intact. Nothing must be done to potentially undermine its integrity. At the time of the explosion, five nuclear reactors at Zaporizhia were on cold shutdown, and now the one that was on hot shutdown has been transferred over to cold shutdown, meaning it requires less energy and less water to keep it cool. Adding to the nuclear safety and security risks, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant continues to rely on the only remaining functioning power line for external electricity that it needs for reactor cooling and other essential nuclear safety and security functions. Before the conflict, the plant had four such off-site power lines available. And be aware that nuclear reactors do not generate their own electricity, but must pull it from the grid just like the rest of us. Now, in the most recent report, the International Atomic Energy Agency is concerned by what they are calling a discrepancy in Ukraine nuclear power plant water levels after the dam collapse. Rafael Grossi said the height of the water level is a key parameter for the continued operability of the water pumps and that there is already a lowering of those levels by two meters, which across a three-kilometer cooling pond is significant. There is a new and very timely report out from the Bologna Foundation entitled The Radiation Risks of Seizing the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant. We will have that available on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 625. In it, the organization analyzes a variety of wartime scenarios that could befall the plant and what the consequences of those might be. In Japan... 
Nothing seems to be able to slow down or forestall that country's intent to release 1.3 million tons of tritium-contaminated radioactive water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean, possibly as soon as next month. Industry Minister Yashitoshi Nishimura met with local fisheries industry representatives last Saturday, June 11, to seek their understanding for the planned release of the radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. But the fishermen and the fishing industry in Japan already understand exactly what is going on, only nobody in government will listen to them. In a report issued by Fukushima's owner and site operator Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, radioactive elements in marine fish caught in the harbor of Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant far exceed safety levels for human consumption. This is TEPCO's data. In a report issued on June 5th, the data released show that the content of cesium-137, a radioactive element that is a common byproduct in nuclear reactors, is 180 times that of the standard maximum stipulated in Japan's food safety law. According to the data, the sampled black rockfish contained cesium with a content of 18,000 becquerels per kilogram. Japan's current limit of radioactive cesium in general food, which contains fish, is set at 100 becquerels per kilogram, or 180 times higher than the set upper limit. Note that U.S. food safety, put that word in quotes, law, stipulates that fish 12 times more radioactive than what's allowed in Japan is acceptable here. That's 2,160 times more radioactive than in Japan. To that radiation load, Japan is now planning to add 1.3 million tons of tritium-contaminated water. Hong Kong has already announced that it will ban seafood and other aquatic products from high-risk regions near Fukushima at once if Japan starts to dump nuclear-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. Chinese officials lambasted Japan's plan to discharge the radioactive wastewater into the ocean, calling it irresponsible. In South Korea, the leader of that country's ruling party met with the Japanese ambassador to Korea, while the leader of the opposition party met with the Chinese ambassador to discuss major issues, including Japan's planned release of the water. Both sides are calling for Japan to transparently and proactively work to eliminate distrust through a highly transparent, objective, and scientific approach. And ahead of the Japanese juggernaut to release this wastewater, South Korean shoppers are buying salt and seafood in bulk in fear of a supply shortage of uncontaminated supplies. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... 12 years, 625 episodes. How in the world did that ever happen? Well, to borrow a concept from the 12-step world, it was accomplished one day, one week, one episode at a time. On Tuesday, June 14, 2011, I never dreamt that the little conference call I'd hastily announced on Facebook would lead to 12 full years of weekly shows, 625 episodes and counting, and so much more in the future. So many incredible, informative conversations with activists, scientists, engineers, epidemiologists, international leaders, and more. Nuclear Hot Seat is my way to fight back for the planet, for life, and against a death technology 
that will keep on killing long after the manufacture, intent, profit, and use of its products have expired to dust and become something that no one even remembers. So to celebrate the start of our 13th year, I invite you to donate to support our monthly running cost. Any amount helps, so how about $13, a baker's dozen of dollars? That would help cover the services required to keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running this month. You could also make it a monthly recurring donation of any amount. Easy enough to set up. $5, cup of coffee, go for it. What have you got to lose? Except the planet and the future of the human race. Nuclear Hot Seat alone can't do it, but we can be a part. A voice that helps amplify and magnify the voices of others who have important things to say. So go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Or if you have Zelle, send money directly to Nuclear Hot Seat's bank account through our email, info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Either way, your donation is tax deductible. So donate now and know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Now here's this week's featured interview. Damasio Lopez was born in Socorro, New Mexico, just two miles away from where depleted uranium weaponry was first developed and tested. He has been studying the consequences of the use of DU weapons for more than 30 years, publishing papers on his findings, meeting with international leaders and activists, doing his own radiation testing, and significantly helping get the weapons banned in two countries. Now, he has a book in the pipeline and a paper putting forth a vision he feels driven to share with Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky before it's too late. Last week, we presented information on Damasio's three films, his involvement with the International Uranium Film Festival since its inception in 2011, and how he helped bring the festival to tour the United States Southwest in 2018. I spoke with Damasio Lopez at this year's International Uranium Film Festival in Rio de Janeiro on May 26, 2023. Damasio Lopez, it's so great to see you here in Rio for the International Uranium Film Festival and for being my guest now on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. You are not specifically a filmmaker. So what brought you down here for this year's festival? Well, this goes back to where I first met the director of the uh, film festival, Norberg Schuschnick. It was back in 2008. I was in Window Rock, Arizona, which is a place where the Native American tribes that were represented around the United States uh, came to uh, together there in 2008. I went there with a film that I had assisted in making in 2000 called The Invisible War, The Politics of Radiation, directed by Martin Mazzarini of Canal Plus. This documentary was a very good one. The following year, in 2011, this particular documentary got an award at the Grand Prix Film Festival. And I thought that was pretty good (laughs) that that happened. But getting back to Norberg, in 2008, I met Norberg in uh, Window Rock, Arizona. I didn't meet him till after I had presented this documentary. That's why I had gone to this, this particular conference. What was the conference that you were at in 2008? 
It was a conference for Native American tribes that were involved in issues having to do with uranium. And of course, in that area, in Windle Rock, we have the Navajo people, and they've suffered a lot from uranium in their mining experiences. And so that's what brought me to Windle Rock. I was, of course, invited there by the chiefs of the conference. And when I went there, uh, lo and behold, that's when I met Norberg. And after I gave the film presentation, he, he wanted to talk to me. I didn't know who he was. He just introduced himself. And I said, sure. So it was all over. We sat down, had some coffee and talked. And, and he mentioned to me that he's very interested in film and that he hoped and was working on an international film festival. He was just getting started, and he had made up his mind he was going to do this. We had a short discussion. I think we talked for about a half hour and didn't see him again until three years later. And by this point, it's 2011. 2011, correct. And what had happened in 2011, I had been involved with a group in Costa Rica. It was the University of Costa Rica, and there was a director named Dr. Pablo Ortega. And together, we worked on this film and came up with a film called Uranio 238, The Pentagon's Dirty Pool. And, of course, the director was Dr. Pablo Ortega from the University of Costa Rica. The film was about a lot had to do with the diseases and problems that they had had in Iraq and some of the things that had happened in my hometown in Socorro, New Mexico as well. This is as a result of depleted uranium. That is correct. All of this was centered around depleted uranium. I met him then, and then three years later, he, I get a, f- a message from Norberg. And I had almost forgotten who he was three years later. And as I said, the year before, in 2010, I had helped with this uh, Uranio 238, the Pentagon's Dirty Pool. And so we had the film already done, and we had been showing it. And so when he said that they're going to have this film festival, I said, I have a film for you. And this was his first year. This was, he was struggling. He was trying to put the thing together. He didn't know if he was going to get the people in there or get the films. And I told him I had this film, and I'd send it to him. He said, okay. So I sent him the film, and he said, hey, great. Come on to the film festival. Give me the dates. And I came here to Rio de Janeiro and met him and his wife, Marcia, and two wonderful people. And I was really impressed with what they were doing and showed the documentary there in 2011. And lo and behold, we get first place in that festival, the first one that they had. We got first place for short film. That was really great. It did a lot for our work in depleted uranium. And since then, uh, Norberg has been doing a lot of work with the depleted uranium, showed a lot of the movies that we've produced here on depleted uranium. I am just so glad to have ever met him and Marcia. Norbert is an indomitable force. And when he finds people who align with his vision and are dedicated to this issue, he tends to keep in touch with us and see what he can do to keep us moving forward as he moves his own work forward. What was the next piece that came together with you and Norbert that was so impactful for the International Uranium Film Festival? Well, Norbert came to my hometown in Socorro, New Mexico. He traveled from here from Rio to Socorro and to meet me and 
he said, told me he had come, and we had spoken on the phone prior to that. He wanted to do a film about Socorro because that's where a lot of the testing takes place for these depleted uranium weapons. In fact, that facility is only, it's less than two miles from my house. So he came to Socorro and asked me to, of course, to help him like I had with others and find people and do a lot of the research. And sure enough, a completed movie documentary called Socorro, The City of Depleted Uranium, it was put together by Transcend Media Service. This was a great help for us in Socorro because we were having very severe problems in my hometown. We had discovered way back in 1972 that depleted uranium was being tested in Socorro, unbeknownst to the people in the town. They had begun testing in 1972, unbeknownst to the people in the town. In 1985, I discovered that they were testing depleted uranium, and I had no idea what that was. And so I contacted the president of the school at New Mexico Tech and told him I would like to have a talk with him. And and that I understood that there was some testing going on on the mountain and I wanted to know more about it. My mother had told me, Damasio, please go out there and find out what's going on because they had this real loud explosions and after each explosion, there'd be this black cloud of smoke that'd come over our little tiny town of Socorro. And this mountain that was sitting next to Socorro, the wind would come from that direction, the prevailing winds and over the community. We were also getting our water, drinking water, coming from that mountain. That's the drinking water for the people of the town. So they were concerned that maybe because of what was going on, that whatever it was they were testing, they didn't know. They didn't know in 1984, 85, that depleted uranium had not only been tested, but had been tested since 1972. And that also going back to 1949, they had been developing the weapon right there in Socorro, along with a couple of other facilities, but Socorro was one of the main ones. So nobody knew about it in the town except the politicians, the county commissioner, the mayor, uh, and then, of course, uh, at the school, they kept mum about what they were doing there. So when my mom asked me to look into this, I wrote a letter to the editor asking what was going on in, in that mountain and uh, I heard these explosions. And what happened after that was a, a series of events took place because I went to the Board of Regents meeting at the school, New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, a public institution right there in Socorro. I asked to be on the agenda for the Board of Regents meeting, and, and I asked a bunch of questions. I said, what are, what are you testing there? And they said, well, we're just testing, like we always have, explosives and things like that, and we do stuff, special types of testing for the military. And they were kind of reluctant to answer my questions, but anyway, I left thinking, okay, everything's okay. Everything's fine. So I went back and told my mom, no, nah, mom, don't worry about it. There's just uh, explosions, explosives that are going off, and they'll eventually stop, I said. Well, an interesting thing happened. About five days after the, an article came out in the newspaper, a tiny Socorro, the questions I had asked at the Board of Regents meeting were in the newspaper, exactly what I was asking about. And so I wake up this one morning, I go outside like I normally do, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, open my door, and out in my lawn are five huge boxes, neatly packed, 
And I thought, why would somebody bring the garbage over here and put them on my lawn next to my front door? So I thought, well, I better look and see what's in here. And to my amazement, I found the entire history of the testing of depleted uranium, not only in my hometown, but in, in Europe and other, and other states across the United States. And who was doing it, how they were doing it, what depleted uranium actually was. There was testing on humans as well, going back to after the war. I was amazed, and, and I thought, what kind of weapon is this? And they kept mentioning that it was uranium and uranium penetrators, and they called them depleted uranium penetrators. I saw all this. In, I didn't, of course, you know, five huge boxes. They must have weighed 100 pounds to go through these. Uh, I just selected a few things, and what I selected was that it was bad for human health and the environment. They had done these kinds of tests. They figured out what kind of diseases people would get and how effective this uh, uranium would be on soldiers. And I saw all of this, and so I got on the telephone, and I called the president of New Mexico Tech. And I said, Mr. President, I'd like to talk to you. I, I have some information about the testing there, and I think maybe we should discuss this. Is, is it possible for me to meet with you? He said, sure, no problem. So we met the next day, and I took some selected documents. One of the documents was that the testing had begun in 1972 of depleted uranium weapons. And then I showed him the document about the research on health and environment and the things that could happen to people and the environment. About this time, his face turned white, totally white. And then he said, what's the matter with you, boy? Don't you understand English? It's depleted of uranium. You should go to school and learn English. This man had to have been 10 years younger than me. And I thought that all that discrimination and racist remarks that I had endured as a young man in Socorro were over with, but obviously not. So with this information, again, you're listed in the program of this year's festival as both an activist and a scholar on depleted uranium. Where did you go with that information, and how did it turn into films? Well, with that information made me a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> there was very few people in the world that had that information. Did you ever find out who left it there? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> About two years later, I was with some friends, and one of them was a cousin of mine, and he called me aside and said, Demacio, you got the boxes? And I said, what? He said, the boxes I left on your lawn. <laughs> I said, you did that? He said, yeah. He said, I had read in the newspaper where you had asked all these questions about the school and the testing and, and so forth. He said, I picked up those boxes at the office of the director of the testing facility called it Terra. This man had gotten brain cancer. He dealt with uranium all the time, right? And so he got real sick, so the school got rid of him. They didn't need him anymore. He went ahead, this director, put all these documents that he had preserved over the years since the beginning, 1949, and they put them in these neat boxes, expecting the janitor to pick them up and burn the stuff like they normally do. Well, my cousin had read the newspaper and saw that I was looking for this kind of information. He's also a good friend of mine and took them in the middle of the night, 
which is when they pick up their trash and take it out and put it in my front yard. (laughs) (laughs) With that information and with your new status as a world expert in depleted uranium on the basis of this incredible information that you were given, what did you do with that and how did that start turning into your participation in the films of others? I knew some things about radiation, not too much. I I knew things about radiation because Socorro, the town that I live in, is only 36 miles from where Trinity took his first blast. And I was three years old at the time, and the people in the town uh, didn't know what had happened. They knew at 5.30 in the morning there had been a big explosion, and it had cracked the walls of people's homes and broken windows. And then the next day, people were confused about what had taken place. And as time went by, I recall when I started school, grade school, uh, I was six years old. And at that time, I had been getting bloody noses for a long time, for a couple of years. My nose would bleed all the time. And when I went to school, I noticed other children there had bloody noses as well. And when I saw that, I thought, well, don't worry about it. You know, it must be normal. And so I didn't think much about that. But later on, when I started doing this research, like when I found all these boxes in my front yard and all that paperwork, I learned that that was one of the symptoms of radiation sickness or one of the results of radiation sickness. So I had so much information and I spent a lot of time reading these things, but I knew I couldn't do these things with, by myself. So I formed a group called Save Our Mountain there in Socorro. It was back in 1985. I was very fortunate. I had like about 15 people in this Save Our Mountain group, and a couple of them were lawyers, one was a writer. They were, you know, people that could understand what they read. And with the information that I had gotten in those boxes, we put our heads together and started writing, writing uh, articles to the paper, not just the paper in Socorro, but the newspapers in these towns and cities across the United States. Not a lot of them, several of them. We knew where, where they were testing these weapons, and the people in those towns didn't even know it, no more than they did in my hometown. So we wrote letters to the editor and a bunch of these cities that we knew they were testing the weapons. We had definite proof it was from the military itself and and the defense contractors. I wasn't taking information that some guy told me in the street. I was taking information directly from the people involved in the process. Some of the paperwork that I had in those boxes had ink on them. A lot of them were not even copies. And not only that, but a lot of these documents went back to 1943 where all of this business of testing depleted or using depleted uranium started. And I was reading all this stuff and I thought, man, what is this? These were documents that had been declassified documents. There's a lot of them. I had like about 50 pages of them. And the way I got those is that my work in the community had gotten to people like the Department of Energy. They had seen what, what was going on in Socorro and, and across the country because all of a sudden it was time to tell the truth about all their testing that they had been doing with radiation on people. And so they had all these documents that they had declassified. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for me, they asked me, the Department of Energy, if I would serve on the Citizens Advisory Board, CAB, they call it, CAB, C-A-B. 
And I said, I'd be more than happy to, because then I went right to the Sandia National Laboratories there in Albuquerque, where they had been testing these weapons for a very long time, just like Socorro, and also at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories. And so I was in a position there, because of my status as a board member of this group, I could ask for information that they had. And I was already pretty good at finding information because, you know, I I learned how to do that. And so I started, I looked around and I finally found someone who had a kind of a library list of the kind of documents that they kept and the ones that were declassified. And and I asked if I could see some. They said, of course you can. You know, you're a member of the Citizens Advisory Board. And I was also a member of the site priority ranking team for uh, Sandia National Laboratories. And I'm talking about the New Mexico area that we dealt with, not, not outside of that. So that's how I come to writing all these papers. And then people like the International Journal of Occupational Medicine and Toxicology accepted one of my papers and, and published it. I was so confused, I couldn't believe it. Because I had some co-authors on that article. Every one of them were PhDs, and most of them were directors of facilities, radiation facilities, and different facilities across the country. There was about six of them. What had happened is I had been invited to a conference in New York, and that's where I met all these people. So I gave my presentation on depleted uranium. They gave theirs on, they were trying to figure out what the Gulf War syndrome was about. People were trying to find the answers, and other people talked about uh, medicine, vaccinations. Uh, I talked about depleted uranium, which I knew well. And after I left the conference, I got a call from one of these guys. He was, uh, you know, all of these guys were were heads of these universities or research facilities. These were not low-end people. These were people at the very top. They wrote me a letter and asked me if I'd be interested in, in submitting an article to the International Journal of Occupational Medicine Toxicology based on my report that I had given in New York. And I said, be happy to. So I did. Wrote it, sent it to them. About three months later, they send me a draft to make sure it's all correct. And on the draft is the names of these guys, written by Dr. This, Dr. That, Dr. This, director of whatever they were, directors of, and presidents of whatever, you know, and PhDs, every one of them. And you. And me, but they had put PhD after my name. And I said, <laughs> I said, I don't have a PhD. I said, I got a bachelor's degree. I said, but no, I don't have a PhD. And it was kind of quiet after that. So I sent it back, sent back the, the draft. A week later, the draft comes back. And on this draft, nobody has their degree in front of their name. <laughs> <laughs> that was their way to get around it. And it got published. So where did things go from there? Nineteen years ago, I had finished what I thought was my work here on depleted uranium. It wasn't finished, but, you know, I thought I had made a dent. One was uh, I worked with a lot of people in Europe, particularly in Belgium, and we set up a coalition there. And in that coalition, we were able to work on getting a ban in Belgium. And we did. It took us three years to get that ban uh, Past. A ban against depleted uranium. Total ban against depleted uranium, where depleted uranium couldn't go on, on their land, water, or air, period. 
And that's happened. And, and Belgium was an interesting one because when the Americans and others were sending their tanks to Iraq to fight the Iraqis, they came in ships to the port there in Belgium. And there they went across land, Belgium's land, to get to Iraq. Well, now they couldn't do that. <laughs> you also had tremendous success in Costa Rica. Tell us about that. Well, in Costa Rica, I had never intended to go there and work on DU. I had gone there to retire and, and put these things behind me and have a different life and go swimming and get in the sun and maybe someday meet, meet some girl and get married. That was it. And I started building a house with my own hands. And I, I got to know some people in Costa Rica and San Jose and in the peace movement. The next thing I knew, I'm being asked by some newspaper people about my past in Socorro and some of the things I had written about depleted uranium. And they want to do an interview like we're having right now. And I did it. I did the interview and it got a lot of publicity. It went around the country. And next thing I know, um, we're repeating the same thing that happened in Belgium. And so I used the same process, same plan that we did in Belgium, which was to give the local people the leadership and let them be the ones who decided how they were going to run the campaign. And what I did was stay in the background and provide information because I had a lot of it, I had a lot of experience. Well, make a long story short, three years later, Costa Rica passes a ban on, just like Belgium did, almost exactly, because I wrote that too as well. <laughs> can, can we ship you around the world to talk to everyone? I hope so. I really hope so. And I'm doing my damnedest. I've been to 30 countries. I've given presentations uh, over a, a couple hundred in different places, and different states and different countries. And I've done my best to get out as far as I can, and I'm not done yet. And I won't be finished I will not be finished until there is a total ban on depleted uranium weapons passed at the United Nations by those five permanent members of the Security Council that are the biggest DU users and sellers in the world. We have had resolutions taken to the United Nations through ICBUW, uh, International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, which I helped organize. I'm one of the founders, and they submitted presentations to the Security Council to ban these weapons. They wanted to have a hearings. The Security Council members, if one of them decides they don't want to hear a resolution, they won't. And that's what's happened about three or four times. And so right now, my aim is to get as many people as possible across the globe to contact those five permanent members of the Security Council and tell them to do their job and ban these weapons like they should. And that's why they are on the Security Council. They are the United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, and China. And we have made several efforts and made resolutions that have come from the Human Rights Subcommission. I worked with them at the UN headquarters in Europe. And every time they would get a resolution to the Security Council, they, they would stop it. And it only takes one member of the Security Council to not accept a resolution. So these guys are pretty tough, and they're the biggest sellers of weapons, as I said before, and users. So they have a lot at stake. These are the people that are holding this thing back because of their desire to make a lot of money, win wars, and kill people. So given that drive and that passion and that focus and that 
knowledge that you bring to all of this. Where are you now in terms of films, working with Norbert, helping with the festival, anything at all? Well, I was in Costa Rica 19 years ago. After the ban was passed in Costa Rica against depleted uranium, they couldn't, they couldn't use it, sell it, do anything on the property. After that, I decided it was time to write a book about my experience with this issue. So I began writing this book, and about five years ago, I felt like I had gotten where I needed to go, and I was ready to publish a book. And I didn't like the political environment in the United States at the time, because a person like me is going to get singled out very quickly by people who feel threatened by my actions. And there are people who felt very threatened about my actions. They were the military-industrial complex, which includes the government. All of a sudden, I did a lot of traveling on airplanes. A lot of places. I mean, you go to 30 countries, you've got to get there somehow. Every time I took a flight, and when I got back and opened my bag, there was a card saying that my bag had been inspected. It was a part of the U.S. government Homeland Security. And something very peculiar happened. Every single time I took a flight anywhere and checked in my bag, I found one of those cards in my bag. Sometimes the things in my bag were all scrambled around. They wanted me to know that, I think, that they had an eye on me, I guess. I remember coming back from Europe one time. I had taken a lot of documents, a lot of declassified documents I had with me. I had about 10 or 15 of them. I had given a presentation at the European Parliament, and I wanted to make sure that I had the documents to back up my claims. Declassified documents from the U.S. government, sometimes, you know, they, they say the truth. <laughs> That's the kind that people can't see. That's why they put down the, what's accurate. So I had all that information, did all of these things, and uh, now I'm sitting here, here thinking about that book. So what I did is I didn't write the book. I mean, I didn't finish it. I didn't publish it. I, I have it written. But then I went ahead when, when the Ukraine war begun. I decided, Damasa, you've got to do something. You've got to speak up. You can't just sit here quiet in Socorro or here in New Mexico letting all these things just happen when you might be able to make a difference here. So I took that 150-page book that I had written and reduced it to 24 pages, which I just finished last week. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. I had had some producers, Hollywood producers, uh, about a year ago, tell me they would like to, you know, have this story about DU and my life and so forth. And I had thought about that from the book that I had written. And they asked me if I could submit something to them to consider for a, a movie, motion picture movie. So I reduced this thing. And in the process of doing this, halfway through it, the war in Ukraine broke out. I thought, well, you know, I better get going here and get this thing finished, and I did. I contacted them, and I had a draft. I sent the draft to them. They were very interested, and they talked about, you know, maybe in a couple of years they could get all this thing out and get the, uh, you know, the script all done. And I thought, well, two years isn't going to suit my purpose. We got a war going on. There's people being killed in Ukraine, and we don't know where all this is going to go, but depleted uranium may be a big issue in this thing. Well, depleted uranium is a big issue. And I have a 24-page document that if I could get it in the hands 
of President Zelensky, I think he might take a little different view of using depleted uranium in his country and contaminating it like Iraq was contaminated and the people became ill in Iraq has become partialed out to warring groups and one little portion of Iraq is still governed by the country of Iraq but the other portions are warlords have taken over. The people in the country have become totally disenchanted with their country. They know their country is contaminated. They have children being born with diseases and different types of deformities that are so bad. I went there to Iraq. I mean, immediately when I found out what was going on there, I I went there and, and I went to the children's hospitals and the different hospitals and I saw the most horrible things I'd ever seen in my life. Even a horror movie wasn't this bad. I mean, these kids look just horrible. I mean, when you, you, you think about, say, a cyclop, you know, somebody with an with a eyeball in the middle of his head, that's really nice for movies, but there's no such thing in reality. There is such things in reality. All you have to do is go to Baghdad and go to some of the children's hospitals there, and you can probably, even today, you can probably find them there. That was a, one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had in my life. It brought me to tears thinking about my hometown and the people in my town producing some of these weapons and testing them there. And I was a part of it just by being there. I'm an American, and we did this to these people. It 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 was hard for me. And I ended up going three different times. One time I went with a military people that had been there in the past and had fought in the highway of death there and and in Baghdad. I spent about a month there, and then two years later, I went with Attorney General Ramsey Clark, asked me to go to Baghdad with him to Iraq, and he invited me. He knew I had been doing surveys. I survey for depleted uranium with radiation instruments. And so he asked me if I could go there with him, and I said, sure. He had a big delegation that went with him. There was about 80 people. We ended up going to the Highway of Death, doing some... uh, testing there it was levels of radiation were extremely high a lot higher than one would expect in finding depleted uranium this was more like man-made radiation i went there with a radiation detector took it to the department of energy which since i was <laughs> part of their citizens advisory board and i told them i wanted to check it out and make sure that uh, this detector would be able to detect depleted uranium and I found one that did. I wanted to know from them exactly how I did the survey, and they showed me and the whole deal, you know. And, and so when I went to Iraq, I was expecting to find a projectile, put this radiation detector to it, and the maximum I was going to get was 600 counts per minute. That was what was expected. I got 2,400 counts per minute. When I left Iraq... I had picked up a newspaper in adjoining country, and in that newspaper I found an article about this guy named Pekka Havisu from the United Nations environmental team that had gone to Bosnia. And in that article, he states that he found traces of high-level uranium, man-made uranium, in the tests that he had done on the field, which was correlated with something that I did. I tried to get the samples out of Iraq 
the country would not let me take the samples out of the rack. First of all, Ramsey Clark said I could do that at the beginning. But then they advised him, no, we're not going to let you do this. We, you know, he has to leave it here. But he did. The other guy down in Bosnia, uh, Pekka Haviso, he took his stuff to three or four laboratories and had his samples tested. And every one of them came up with isotopes of high-level uranium from nuclear fuel plants. What leads me to believe this, and it'll find, we'll, we're going to learn this in the future. Right now, a lot of groups that work in this field say, oh, no, they don't use that. It's only this depleted uranium with a lower contact of radiation. And they stick to that no matter what. But, you know, I was out in the field. I'm getting 2,400 counts per minute, and I'm figuring 600 is a maximum. Well, and then this Pekka Havisu who works in the United Nations Environmental Program. He's on a team. He was the leader of the team. In fact, he ran for president in Finland last year. He comes out with his article, and, and then I, he had some follow-up stuff, and I contacted him at one point, and I had a little talk with him about what I had found in Iraq. And so far, we're the only two who have actually come forth and said this. And every time I say this to other organizations that work on this, they say, oh, no, Damasio, it's only depleted uranium. They're not going to use anything like that from nuclear fuel plants. I said, Okay. So while you are here in Rio with Norbert and Marcia and the rest of us who are here for the festival, what are you hoping to have here or experience here or enjoy here or ignore here? Okay. Well, I want to take this 24-page report that I condensed from 150 pages that I started writing 10 years ago and it's finished. I want to get that report in the hands of the president of Ukraine. If he reads it, I do not believe he will allow depleted uranium to be shot in his country. The connections that are here, the people who are here, we have no idea where this is all going to land, but certainly having this interview on nuclear hot seat and other things that we have discussed in connection with it, we'll see what can be done to get the information out into the world. For now... I am so glad that you're here from New Mexico and I'm here from Los Angeles and this is where we meet and learn about each other. So you are now part of the Nuclear Hot Seat family of connections. God knows I will be in touch with you in the future. For now, Demacio Lopez, thank you and bless you so much for the work that you have been doing, that you continue to do, and for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much, and I hope the people out there remember what I said about how to stop this. Get a hold of the five members of the Permanent Security Council of the United Nations. Those are the people that can stop this. Nobody else can. It is them. Actually, it's not them. It's you. You, the people out there across the world. You're the ones that can stop this. Nobody else can, and nobody else will. The politicians are making lots of money on it. The people in local governments, they get more money when the military comes in and does whatever kind of military work they do. It doesn't matter whether it's depleted uranium, nuclear bombs, or or just simply army bases. You know, the economy on the military is such a big deal with Americans that stopping permanent contamination of the land or something that people call depleted uranium, they think, why should I be concerned about something that's depleted of uranium when there's so many important things going on in this world? And, of course, that's just semantics. But we will revisit that at a future time. All right. Demacio Lopez. 
Know that his book, entitled Memoirs of a Gadfly, One Man's Fight Against Depleted Uranium Bullets, is currently being edited for publication, which will hopefully take place later this year. We'll bring you news of its availability when that happens. For now, you can contact Demacio for interviews or to be put on his mailing list to learn about the book via email at l.demacio, D-A-M-A-C-I-O, at yahoo.com. And of course, we'll have that link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 625. In honor of completing 12 full years of producing Nuclear Hot Seat every week, I've compiled a brief look back at some of the moments during the past year that you didn't get a chance to hear. These are just a few of the... First, two examples of how I try to gently guide guests into giving the best interview possible. Okay, so stop right there couple of things slow down okay sorry. okay and also let me guide you through because you've just taken up about half the questions that i already prepared oh, okay i'm sorry okay because i want i know i want to take you through this so it becomes a storytelling experience for the listener Got and it. we're so okay. used to in this community having to go i have to say it all um yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay we've got we've got time here and also this could obviously go on all day and all night, but <laughs> it has been. <laughs> We're all here in Irwin in Johnson City. We've been going on. <laughs> and is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this time? Briefly. <laughs> Maintaining a peaceful environment for each interview is key. This is important to all of our futures in the fight against nuclear to have scientific information, peer-reviewed, blind study to tell us exactly what we're up against so that it's not a he said, she said, and they've got more money to go into PR than we do. So they can out-shout us anytime they want to, but let the truth be told and let the garbage cans go away from outside my window. Hold on for a second. The trucks are going by. This is why I don't usually interview on Monday. We'll save the background barking dog montage for another time. Sometimes I'm truly overwhelmed by what I've just heard from an interviewee. Excuse me while I catch my breath. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I deal, you, we're off interview for a moment now. I deal with this every week. I mean, you deal with it there. I'm looking at everything and I'm going, holy cow, they're everywhere and they're doing everything. And so let me, let me see if I can, if I can get this back. Meticulous preparation is always necessary to create a smoothly running interview. Say that again a little bit more. Isn't clearly. it, isn't it uh, pacta sunt servanda? Uh, that, uh, my Latin's old. I can't remember very well, but. I'm Jewish. I know Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> And this classic moment, during the time that the baby tooth study was begun, what was your position, or if Radiation and Public Health Project existed, what was its position with this? I was five years old in 1961, so uh, <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I, I could tell you what uh, what Yogi Bear, what Yogi Bear was like, and uh, you know how 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 cocoa puffs were really good, but that was about it. <laughs> What I was you, doing in kindergarten. You know, time collapses when you're dealing with, 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 with nuclear stuff. I didn't even stop to think about that. 
And then there are the payoffs from my carefully researched talking points. For example, the flyer is dated August of 2020, and the public service announcement would have needed months of production to get it all through and approvals and funded and all the rest. So let's just say January 1st of 2021. Yeah, let me stop you there, please, because the flyer that I got online Mm -hmm. is 2018. It says Ah, that's even better. That's (laughs) even better for the point that I wanted to make. And there you have it. Some of my most sterling moments from the past year. And that's just the start, because much more will be forthcoming as we launch into year 13, lucky 13 of Nuclear Hot Seat, bringing you more interviews, news, numbnuts, hot stories with Linda Penskunter, and several new features still in the planning stages. So stay tuned. And while you're at it, if you want an easy way to support us, Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and sign up in the yellow opt-in box. Google algorithms like it when we show a robust database, so that will really help. Or go to Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook and click follow, like, make a comment, then forward the link to two people you think would be interested in learning more. The only way this show gets out is with your help. And if you can assist us, that will build our reach so that Google and Facebook algorithms pick up the show and more people get to know the facts. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 13, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, that's what the database is for. Sign up in the yellow opt-in box with your first name and email address, and every week, as soon as the show posts, you'll get one email, one only, with the link and a short description of the show's content. You can also find us on your favorite source for accessing podcasts. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help, and anything you do will appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you give us credit with, at minimum, the name of the show and the website. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat reminding you, the Earth is a rock in the middle of a bubble in the middle of nowhere. What happens on Earth stays on Earth, so we better start dealing with depleted uranium and all the other sources of nuclear radiation now. There you've got it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because, with the help of the students of the Adolfo Block School in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. That will be on my show. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.